sang some of the great hymns this morning. One of my favorite hymns is Standing on the Promises. You know that one, Blanche? And, uh, ah, you know, that's okay. But Standing on the Promises is a hymn that encourages Christians. If you're a believer, put your name in the blank. Ken Wanzer, Jack Smith, Angie Miller, Jenny Heath, Sue Smith-Raska. Standing on the promises encourages Christians to rely upon and rest in the guarantees God gives us in his word. And I could list a lot of those, and uh, we can think of them. I I really like, uh, Jesus says, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him has everlasting life, and I myself will raise that person up on the last day. It's one of my favorites. But there is... Uh, a set of promises that a lot of us are not that crazy about. And I'm thinking particularly about Psalm 73, which is kind of like the book of Job in one ver- in one chapter, I should say. Psalm 73 says, among other things, my flesh and my heart will fail. And that's one of those promises we're not real crazy about, right? Now, theologically, Hebrews 9.27 says, in that same vein, it's appointed unto human beings once to die, and after that, the judgment. So, if you're concerned about your eternal well-being, you better look at the one who conquered death. Uh, Muhammad is dead. Joseph Smith is dead. The Buddha is dead. I was in a place in Thailand that had part of his collarbone a few years ago. But we believe in a risen Savior. And these Old Testament passages and this family, this very dysfunctional family we're looking at is part of the human raw material God will use to bring the humanity of Christ. He's the God-man, of course. But the humanity of Christ goes back to this very dysfunctional family. Although, you know, God will save you the way you are, but he loves you too much to keep you that way. And uh, you see these uh, this family doing a lot of spiritual repair, or God's doing a lot of spiritual repair, and we're going to see Jacob is not the same guy he was we saw last week. Jacob's the father of this of this group. But in our passage today, which is it's a little odd, I mean, we break um, the last couple of verses of chapter 47 off, but we're looking at chapter 47, 28, verse 28 through chapter 48, 22. In this passage, we're going to see an aging Jacob who knows he's approaching his death, responsibly deal with certain things that he owes his family and testifies very strongly of his faith. And so we're going to talk about the idea that you're not really ready to live until you're really ready to die. And even then, there are some things, uh, you know, our culture kind of has formal, kind of farmed death away from the home quite often and, and it's something we don't talk about. I mean, we live in a, uh, some, I think Marshall McLuhan said 50 years ago, this culture talked about death all the time, but the culture never talked about sex, you know, in public uh, uh, settings. And now we live in a culture where everybody talks about sex, including all the entertainment, but nobody wants to talk about death. And if you're denying death, you don't even need the gospel. And when you're denying the reality of sin, you don't need a savior. And that is a bad way to live. Because uh, every headline, and today it's going to be a cyber headline. Nobody reads newspapers anymore, right, Javier? But you can get on the Internet. Uh, there's murder and mayhem all day, every day. And not only do we break uh, 
our own standards. We break God's standards all the time at our worst. So we're going to think about life and death and learning some lessons from the way Jacob here approaches his death. But before we dive into our passage, let's pray for our teachability. Uh, let this be about the text, not the teacher. Hopefully I can shine some light on some things. But this is about the text and you moving it from your head to your heart. So it goes from information to transformation. And I think uh, we're being taught some principles here that will help you think better about life and death. So let's remember those who protect our rights to do that. And uh, we've got a new member of the Collage this morning. we got uh, Alexander Mangum. He's uh, right below Scott in the middle, the helicopter pilot. Right uh, below him, we've got Alexander. He just finished basic training at Lackland Air Force Base, and he is Stan's great-nephew. So we're going to make him rich and famous like we've done these other guys here as we pray for these people uh, we know or know about and love. So let's pray for our, our teachability, our troops, our peace officers, and our firefighters. Okay, and... Uh, Let's see. Uh, Ken, would you lead us in prayer in that direction, please? Okay, warm up your capacity for abstract thought. You know, Ron Miller is a humble guy, but he's got a lot to be humble about. But one thing he likes to do, he's always happy to share the fact that Pastor B can be hard to take at times. And I will readily admit that is true. But you know what? After many hours of research, I have found at least one pastor who's worse than I am if that's possible, and this is proven by three headlines that uh, appeared in this man's local paper in the last six months. So I'm going to show you these headlines. Now, that looks a little bit like Daryl, uh, but it's not Daryl. Uh, but this is a headline about this guy. Out of touch, uncaring, and unrealistic pastor continues to insist major weekly church services each fall, in the fall, should meet on the same day NFL teams play most of their games. I mean, the trend now is Saturday night. I guess they want to get them out of the bars and the hockey tonks, so they have church on Saturday nights at the big popular churches so everybody can sleep in on the Lord's Day. So that's an interesting approach, but it's very unique if you look at church history. Uh, Here's the second headline. After a week of diligent study, pastor distills one Bible verse made up of 11 words into a a three-and-a-half-hour message. I've never gone that long. Made up of, and this is the bad part, 666 main points. <laughs> and then finally, uh, this is a third recent headline about this guy. Longtime pastor resigns in disgrace after admitting, so embarrassing, he hates casseroles. <laughs> but he loves Cheetos. So it's a weird thing. You know, you get up and... Okay, that would I might win the Nobel Peace Prize some year for sure. Um, you get in your Bible study helicopter and you look at kind of the big sweep of this saga, chapter thirty-seven through fifty, the life of Joseph, and I think we're seeing a a superlative example of the redeeming power of perseverance, a holy hanging in there, and forgiveness, not holding any grudges, in believers who actively rest and live in light of the sovereignty slash providence of God. Last week we talked especially about the providence of God, the fact that all things work together for good according to God's program, 
which doesn't mean he's morally responsible for evil. God's the ultimate source of everything, but he's not the blamable cause for any evil in the same way that I guess the Harley Davidson Motorcycle Company is responsible ultimately for all the wrecks involving Harley Davidsons. But if somebody is uh, distracted or playing with their phone or drinking something they shouldn't drink in a vehicle and doesn't see a motorcycle and run over runs over the guy on the Harley Davidson, it's not really Harley Davidson's fault. They're the ultimate cause, not the blamable cause. But yeah, you look at the life of Joseph, you see the providence of God, all things working together for good. Romans 8 specifically says God causes all things to work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, that doesn't mean everything is good. Is murder good? No. All things work together for good, like in a mosaic. And I want to show you this example again. You know, my problem is I'm, I'm kind of an analyzer, and I like to think through things and line them all up and get up with a, get a diagram in my head so I can think about how things work. And that, that helps me in some areas. But uh, when I'm in, in the midst of an adversity test or I'm seeing some of you dealing with adversity tests and I'm praying about it and thinking about it and suffering with you and trying to figure it all out and how exactly, you know, what lesson is God trying to teach me? Don't touch your, don't torture yourself with that question. You'll figure out what the lesson is soon enough. It may take a decade to figure it out. Just keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. You know, fly on your instruments. But anyway, those are three pieces that uh, might appear in a modern art museum of modern art, and somebody might try to sell you that for $100,000. But to me, that doesn't look like very much. And when I try to analyze... Uh, why certain things happen in my life or in some of your lives, I can't figure it out. But then again, I'm only seeing maybe three or 33 uh, relevant pieces of the puzzle. God sees the whole puzzle, and I like to think of our lives are like a mosaic as God uses the dark pieces and the light pieces and the rectangular pieces and the big pieces and the smaller pieces. And that, which is what this reality looks like when you only see a couple of the pieces, Sydney is actually that. Look at that, uh, either, any, any one of those. I like to look at the upper uh, piece there as I go to that transition. Just keep your eyes on that. Now, if that's all you can see, it doesn't look like much. You wouldn't think I was a work of art. But when you look at the whole thing, see, that's what we see. This is what God sees, right? And so I think that's a helpful analogy. But anyway, we're going to look at our passage today. It breaks into three parts. First, sensing his death was near... Jacob has his son Joseph promised to bury him not in Egypt where they're living, but in Canaan, the promised land that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were promised would go to their posterity. That's the first thing, verses 28 through 31 of chapter 47. Then Jacob surprises Joseph and the whole family by giving special um, honor to Joseph by Jacob adopting both of Joseph's sons. And that would be the basis for the 12 tribes of Israel because there is no tribe of Joseph. There's a tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh. And there's actually, when you add it all up, there's 13, but Levi's a separate category because that's the priest. And, you know, priests and preachers aren't real people, you know, so they always put us in a different category. And that's the bulk of this passage today. I like to call it the, the Gomer Pyle section, you know, surprise, surprise, surprise. Um, Johnny Miller used to talk about bad golfers play army golf, you know. They hit the ball right, left, right, left, right, left, you know. 
And then the last two verses we see Jacob gives Joseph himself a special blessing. All sons are heirs in the Old Testament, but some sons are special heirs. All believers in Christ and salvation isn't a reward, it's a gift. But I dare say that uh, we're all going to get some reward, but some will get a whole lot more than others. So let's look at this first part. Jacob's sensing his death is near. Uh, has his son Joseph, who's the prime minister of Egypt, as you know now. He's got the wherewithal, not just the, the, the motive, but the means and the opportunity to do this, to bury him in Canaan, not in Egypt. Look, in fact, let's drop back, back to one verse, to verse 27 for context. Now, Israel, and this is one of the first times Israel is used not as Jacob's personal name, but as Jacob and his whole family, and ultimately the people of Israel, uh, people, the Jewish people, I should say. Now, Israel, that is this collective group under the elder statesman Jacob, lived in the land of Egypt, specifically in Goshen. These are real places, real people, real events. Promised lands over here, but the people of God are going to go from 70 people to a million and a half over the next 400 years in Egypt before Moses leads them out of Egyptian bondage. Now, Israel lived in the land of Egypt, specifically in Goshen, there where the water is, and they acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. We're actually doing a 17-year jump from uh, the end, uh, from this point to the previous parts of chapter 47. We saw that Jacob told the Pharaoh he's 130 years old, but now this next section, which actually starts toward the end of chapter 47 here in verse 28, uh, is 17 years later. So be aware, you sometimes have big jumps. It's called literary compression. Moses, who's the author, doesn't tell you everything about everything. He tells you what you need to know to understand what he's trying to communicate. Now, Israel lived in the land of Egypt, in Goshen, acquired property, they're doing well, were fruitful, and became very numerous. Verse 28, Jacob, that is specifically the father of the 12 boys, including Joseph, lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. Now, remember last week when he finally migrated to, to Egypt, Jacob, he interacted with the Pharaoh, Joseph's boss, and the first thing the Pharaoh says is, how old are you? He must have been looking pretty bad that day. <laughs> how old are you? And he says, 130 years. And what does he say? Short and painful has been my life on earth. You know, He's a whole different guy now, 17 years later, as we're going to see. It's crazy. God is in the people-changing business. I don't give up on anything or anybody because God's in the, in the miracle business. That don't happen... Uh, all day long, and they do in a way. But I mean, the big miracles are kind of rare, but uh, they do happen. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. That's interesting because how old was Joseph at the very beginning of the story? Chapter 37, when his brothers sold him into slavery, how old was he? Do you remember? 17 years old. So God made, God, God likes symmetry quite often. You know, J- J- Joseph leaves at age 17. Jacob moves to live with Joseph. For 17 years before he gets promoted. Pretty cool. So the length of Joseph's life, or Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time for Israel to die drew near, just a few more weeks probably at this point, he calls his son Joseph and said to him, Please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh. We signed contracts in the ancient Near East. They put their hands under the person's thigh. Kind of laid hands on them to uh, use Pastor Mike's analogy, or, or uh, 
my wife doesn't like the trend in some churches to refer to the pastor's wife as the first lady because she said, I'm not the pastor, I'm not the first lady, I'm just uh, hopefully a contributor to the cause here. But uh, that's kind of a thing. So I guess if Mike is Pastor Mike, I guess in some senses Jan's the first lady or something like that. But anyway, so when it's time for Israel to die, he calls the son says, if I found favor, I want you to solemnly, bindingly promise me to deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me here in Egypt. And boy, he could have had a colossally impressive funeral service in Egypt with all the uh, assets that Joseph has at his disposal in front of all those people. But he's not interested in that. His heart's somewhere else. But when I lie down my father's, you shall carry me, that is my body, out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place, Machpelah in Hebron, to be exact, is where Abraham and Isaac, the grandfather and the father of Jacob, had been buried. And he said, that is, Joseph said, I'll do as you've said. And he said, swear to me. So I want this to be legal. I want you to sign this thing, as it were. So I swore to him. Then Israel, notice that's referring to Jacob. Quite often Israel and Jacob are used interchangeably, not collectively. Then Israel, Jacob, bowed in worship at the head of his bed. So he's uh, very much into the fact that God has made unique promises to his grandfather and to his father and now to him that ultimately will lead to the Savior. And it's all going to be centered not in Egypt. This is just a temporary 430-year sojourn for this group of people. It's centered in and around Jerusalem in the land of Canaan. And he wants to be where that action is, you know. So I think we see Jacob's faith in these key promises that he's very much aware of. That uh, and we're going to see some of those in a minute. Um, so in humble recognition that God's purposes are much bigger than we are and our whole generation. You know, I like to say that born-again Christians, people by God's grace trusted in Christ alone for salvation, receive the free gift of eternal life of all colors, countries, denominations, generations, cultures. We're all one big happy group. You know, we're all going to be together ultimately in heaven. And our whole generation is just one part of a link that God sees from the beginning to the middle and the end. So again, that mosaic illustration, I think, is helpful because some of the stuff that you may go through now that may cause you to live in Oklahoma and not Oregon is going to affect, uh, for us, is going to affect uh, Cooper and Peter. We had to come to Oklahoma because Jamie had to meet Kristen. I mean, Jonathan had to meet Candace. I had to meet Amber. I couldn't have met him, you know, someplace else. I had to be here. But I didn't know that at the time, right? Um, in humble recognition that our time is very short, that God's plan is much bigger than we are, or a whole generation is, believers like Jacob is should anticipate our death and informed our, inform our loved ones about our wishes about how to proceed after we get promoted. Now, I very seldom ask, access my phone during... Um, church, but I want to read something Chuck Swindoll says about this in his treatment of the life of Joseph. He says, as a pastor, and currently, when he wrote the book, he was president of Dallas Seminary. He's no longer holding that position, but when he wrote the book, he was currently one who's training those who will become pastors. I care deeply about this matter of dying. We don't prepare for dying while we're dying. He's just saying that's not a good time to start thinking about it. We must prepare for dying while we're living. I like to say you're not really ready to live until you're really ready to die. 
And with Jesus, you're ready to die. Although I don't want to go this afternoon. I got plans myself. But I mean, you know, we submit to the will of God. We must prepare for dying while we're living and healthy. We should think about it and discuss it together as a family. I mean, what a testimony to your kids, including the ones far away from the Lord, when you say, hey, when I die, I, I want this to happen, I want that to happen. When Rick Buchanan, before he got sick, had already written out a lot of what he wanted, maybe heard a message on this passage. I don't know, I wasn't here. Um, but, uh, you know, I was presented with that toward the end of his life, and so he kind of knew exactly what he wanted, and I think that was fine, you know. He says, um, let me pick up where I left um, We must discuss it together as a family. Death is not something to be feared for us as believers. It's an enemy. The last enemy to be feared would be death, but it, it's not something we have to act like we're... Uh, uh, is the ultimate tragedy because it's not. It's just moving from one place to another. Not something to be feared, shunned, or avoided. It is something to be shared with those family members and friends who have accompanied us through life's sojourn. And you hear, hear Joseph, uh, Jacob is very much aware that he's about to die and he wants to be buried not in Egypt but in uh, the promised land. And I think that's a pretty cool thing. So here we are. After sensing his death, he gets Joseph to promise to bury him in the promised land. Now remember, this is kind of a uh, synthetic chart of the Bible. That side's the Old Testament, the books written before the first coming of Christ. That side's the New Testament. We're living out here somewhere. The major premise of the Old Testament is what? Everybody sins, everybody dies. I know about Elijah. I know about Enoch, but 99.9999%, right? That's the major premise. What's the major promise of the Old Testament? God's going to send somebody to take care of the sin problem as a lamb who will eventually be the lion. New Testament's written, the generation that interacted with Jesus, primarily by apostles or those close to the apostles, one major premise. What's the major premise of the New Testament? Jesus of Nazareth is the one the Old Testament promised. And he's coming twice. Uh, He came the first time to seal the deal for salvation. Uh, what's the major promise? He's coming back. So remember, we're, we're New Testament Christians out here reading about these Old Testament guys and gals. And specifically, these folks are very significant. Everybody's special, but these people are extra special because this is the human line through which God's going to bring the Messiah. The Gospel of Matthew, first New Testament book, starts with a genealogy. How come? Because God made these promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob that through that line Jesus would come. And Matthew, who's the most Jewish uh, uh, author of a gospel, at least his is the most Jewish in character, starts with that requirement. Because if Jesus doesn't fit the correct genealogy, Robbie, you can't even consider him as the Messiah, as the Savior. So these folks are integrally involved, but 2,000 years before even the first coming of Christ. So God's got a big plan. It's multi-generational. It's multicultural. It's very inclusive. Whosoever will may come, right? Now, how were people saved in the Old Testament? By obeying the Old Testament law? That'd be a problem because we're told by the works of the law, no one will be justified in God's sight. But through the law comes the knowledge of sin, which means you need a Savior. And they were given promises. And in John 8, Jesus says, Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
saw my day and rejoiced. He saw it in the eyes of faith. He believed the promises about the land, the seed, the Savior, and the blessing. So these folks were saved by faith, directed forward to the promised Savior. How are we saved on this side, the New Testament side of the ledger? Faith directed backward. I don't have that much slide. Faith directed back to the provided Savior, right? Now look at this. When you look at the Old Testament, the books written before the first coming of Christ, as they talk about who the Savior is going to be, they get very specific and it starts with he's going to be a human being, not an angel or an alien, a male, not a female, Semite, a Jewish guy through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, tribe of Judah, and so on. So these people are just one part of a multi-generational chain. Uh, this is our turn to, to live for the Lord. And uh, we're seeing this worked out here in this passage. Now, as... Jacob is looking at the end of his life. He's thinking about these promises that he himself received on the heels of his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac receiving similar promises. Back in Genesis 28, Jacob's ladder, actually it was a ramp. Uh, that's what the word means. Uh, may God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples, not just 70. May he also give you the blessing of Abraham land, seed, and the blessing, including the Messiah, to you and your descendants with you, that you may possess the land, Canaan, Israel, of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. And then in chapter 35, I'm God Almighty, El Shaddai. Be fruitful, multiply, uh, because a nation shall come fr- forth from you, Jacob. Kings will come forth from you, King of kings, Lord of lords, ultimately. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I'll give to you. And I'll give the land to your descendants after you. And this guy is totally locked into those promises. Realizes he's just one person in one generation. But eventually it's going to happen. He's not going to see it fulfilled in his lifetime. But he totally believes it. He's totally content in that. And uh, it's a beautiful thing when you actually connect these these dots in your spiritual life. Surprise number one. Jacob surprises Joseph and the whole family by giving special honor to Joseph. There's actually two surprises. First verses 1 through 13, chapter 48. Jacob adopts his grandsons and grafts them into the family with Reuben and Judah and the rest of them. Now it came about after these things, a few days, a few weeks after this initial interaction where they're promising that they're going to bury Jacob back in the promised land. Uh, Joseph, who's at his desk one afternoon, is told, your father is sick. He was already about to die, and now he's sick, so he's very, very close now. So Joseph took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Sorry. With him to go see his dad. And when it was told to Jacob, behold, your son Joseph, the prime minister, is going to come visit Israel, that's referring to Jacob, collected his strength and sat up in bed. You know, uh, when I'm sick, I don't really want visitors, you know, because I I can do nothing with my hair when I'm sick. It doesn't look good. So if you come see me, I'll have a cap on, and and probably more than that, hopefully. But uh, um, uh, he sits up, and sometimes a visitor uh, can really encourage somebody. When uh, it's funny, one reason I went to dental school, not uh, medical school, is because I, di- I like I didn't like hospitals, and so I became a pastor and I spent all my time in hospitals. But uh, when I got to hospitals, I always pray as I walk walk in the door, Lord, help me to be a blessing. 
If I have to listen to all the details of this person's bunion removal five times by five different relatives, I will do that. I, I care that much, you know. But I know a lot about bunion removal after these many years. Uh, when it's told to Jacob, your son's come to you, he, he collected his strength. He was encouraged by just the fact they're going to show up at all. And sometimes that happens. It's a great thing. Uh, I remember one time I was outside of ICU and uh, somebody said, I don't want to see him. <laughs> I'm talking about me. <laughs> and so I just kind of slinked away because I'm not going to force myself on you. If you don't want me there, I will not, sh- I will not come. I will go away. Uh, then so I don't have to punch my ticket. And so I can tell the elders, yeah, I visited that guy. He didn't want me to be there, but I visited him. You know, uh, Sometimes you do busy work. Uh, then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty. Remember, we just saw that in 35. Now he's recalling that. In 48, chapter 48, let's go back to that. We're in the middle part of that. God Almighty appeared to me at Luz. In fact, that's referring back to chapter 28, uh, the Jacob's Ladder passage, also known as Bethel, in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous. They started with just 70. They're going to get really big over a million and a half, probably 400 years after that when they were led out of Egyptian bondage by Moses. And I'll make you a company of peoples, and I will give this land, that is the Canaan, not Egypt, to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Now, Jacob says to his son Joseph, who has his two little boys. They're not little boys. They're probably 20 years old now because we're 17 years later from what we saw last week. Now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you here in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt 17 years ago, are mine. I'm going to legally adopt them to give you, Joseph, in effect, a double blessing, right? A double representation in the 12 that will become the heads of the tribes. Uh, Now your two sons who were born before I came here are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh, that's the names of Joseph's sons shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon and all those other guys are my sons. That's big. And we got this family tree of this very dysfunctional family. And as we say, when we get to this end of the story, uh, God's brought these people a long way in character development. But uh, Joseph, of course, was the one of two sons of Jacob's favorite wife. Now, let's talk about this again because I had somebody misquote me recently. Um, I think as as biblical Christians, we're going to say uh, the ideal of marriage is one man, one woman, life, one lifetime. Now, one person can total a marriage, but usually two are involved in doing it. But that happens, and there there you know there are concessions for things like that. But uh, the Bible teaches polygamy, right? I mean, Jacob is in heaven right now. I mean, Jesus says he is, so I guess we can go with that. Uh, and he had not one, not two. He didn't have three. I think three is more than enough. He had four wives with all these guys and a very dysfunctional thing. So why are we saying he should only have one wife? Because in the narrative portions of Scripture, Book of Acts, New Testament, Book of Genesis, Old Testament, Quite often you have descriptions, not necessarily prescriptions. They're just telling you what happened. Abraham never built a house with a slab. He lived in a tent. So did Isaac. So did Jacob. So really spiritual people should live in tents, right? That's just describing what they did because they were just temporary sojourners in the land that ultimately would belong to their posterity. Posterity. So, yeah, that this is not teaching polygamy and... Um, 
also, I, I listened to things like Christopher Hitchens, who, uh, who unfortunately died a few years ago, but he was a famous atheist. I listened to him debate Christians sometimes when I'm moving chairs around and stuff. And he said, well, the Bible teaches polygamy is in Genesis. It describes people had, who had multiple wives, and it was always a mess every single time. But as early as Genesis 2, we're told, for this reason, a man shall leave his father's mother, cleave to his wife, and they become one flesh. It's one man, one woman. That's the direct teaching. These are examples, kind of bad examples, but the Bible doesn't paper over the issues of the characters. It just paints them, you know, uh, with all the colors, you know. Verse 6, but your offspring that have been born after them, that is, any children you have now after this, Joseph, they're going to be yours. I'm not adopting them. I'm adopting these two, Ephraim, Manasseh, in a special sense here right before I, I check out. They should be called by the names of their brothers and their inheritance. Now, as for me, when I came from Paddan, Aram, Aram, Rachel, his favorite wife, that's the problem. If you have four, you're probably going to have a favorite, and that's not a good thing, you know. You've got to make the person you're married to your favorite spouse, okay? Stephanie, Bo's got to be your favorite husband, okay? Even on the bad days, you got to you got to be their cheerleader. We, we, we all need cheerleaders, you know. Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey, when there was still some distance to us to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath. Now, you know it better as Bethlehem. That's a, a later name that, that uh, um, actually one town with two different names, which wasn't that uncommon there because like Duncan, you know, I lived in Dallas when I went to seminary and they called, they called Dallas, you know what they call it? Big D. Dallas is Big D. I've lived in Duncan now 31 years. I call it Little D. Little d with a lowercase l for little and a lowercase d. So if I'm referring, I'm going back to little d, I'm in little d today, I mean, Duncan, no disrespect intended there. Right? Now, he refers, Jacob refers back to the death of Rachel, the mother of Joseph here. So he's looking at big picture. But there's a really cool thing here in back in Genesis 35 where we read about Rachel's death as she's giving birth to Benjamin, the second of two sons she had, Joseph was the first, Benjamin's second. And they journeyed from Bethel, uh, and when they were still some distance to go to Ephrath, or better known as Bethlehem to us, Rachel began to give birth. She suffered severe labor. She's going to die giving childbirth here. Uh, when she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, uh, now you have another son. And it came about as her soul was departing, for she died. You know, almost every funeral I teach or I speak at, I try to put some teaching in and I always say four things. Number one, death is universal, though, despite the advances of modern science. And I'm all for medical advances. I'm praying for hair growth. I'm praying for that pill. You pay it and your hair grows back. Uh, I won't go into the thing old men talk about. You get hair growing all different places but your head. You know, it's a bad thing. It's get old. But, um, yeah, the death rate is 100%. That's number one. Number two, death is not an extinction of consciousness. It's the separation of your consciousness, your soul, from your body, right? How does that work? Well, Christ shows us because he lived a perfect, righteous life, died, and came out the other side. So we know that life after death is a reality, and uh, you're not really ready to live until you're really ready to die, and you'd be ready to die by recognizing your sin, you got it, and it's on you. Uh, your inability to save yourself, you can't fix it, but Jesus can, and you can have him as Savior, 
by simple faith. Simple faith is not all that simple. It's active, receptive trust in God is opening your eyes and opening your heart and letting you see so that you can embrace Jesus Christ and receive that gift. But Rachel, as an Old Testament believer, dies when her soul leaves the body. Now, I know the EEG and EKG, all the physical functions stop too, but ultimately permanent death, biological death, is the separation of your consciousness from your body. And he talks about that. Um, and I buried her there just outside of Bethlehem, about one mile north. Verse 8, when Israel, that is Jacob here personally, saw J- Joseph's son, sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, he said, who are these? Now, he's got bad eyes. So he may not be sure that's them. He's just confirming it. Or maybe he's just emphasizing, hey, Joseph, those are your kids, but I'm going to legally adopt them. So they'll be as much the uh, head of tribes as uh, Simeon and Reuben are. Um, now, who's are these? So Joseph said to his father, these are my sons whom God has given me here in Egypt. So he said, Jacob, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Uh, you know, if I knew how much fun grandkids are, I would have had them first. You know, somebody said that. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age he could not see. And it's ironic because his dad Isaac was so blind. Remember what Jacob did? He could fool him about birthrights. But here we've got everything above board. Uh, no scheming here. Then Joseph brought him close to him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Jacob, Israel said to Joseph, just an ironic aside, the kind of thing you'd say. You might think, but you need to say it. I'm so glad Pam reminded us about um, uh, Krista and uh, and Kirk, you know, because I know a lot of you maybe haven't um, heard that or didn't know that. But isn't that a wonderful thing? Uh, sometimes you need to verbalize these things. If you feel the Holy Spirit prompting you to do something nice, go ahead and do it before the urge goes away. But I mean, he's thinking this, but he just looks at Joseph and the the young men there probably, are, you know, they're they're not probably making a big deal about this. But Joseph, Jacob, 137 year old guy, looks at Joseph. He says, "You know what? Uh, for years, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your children. Is this any good or what? You know?" And uh, you know, I I got to spend the fourth with um, Jamie, Kristen, but I really went to see Cooper, uh, Peter, and Mason. But boy, it was a blast. Then Joseph, but I re-injured my, my back, chasing the football, trying to be a hero. And little, you know, when you're playing an eight-year-old, a five-year-old, and two-year-old, I got to bring my A-game to hang up with them. And uh, I kind of, uh, to avoid a tree, I had to kind of torque my back. So it's, it's, uh, Ken took me playing. Ken gave me a golf uh, clinic a couple weeks ago and showed me how to play the game. And... Uh, we play. We're gonna play 18 holes on the ninth uh, tee. I hit a pretty weird shot, but I've got an excuse. My back kind of seized up on it. But then, actually, I was thinking that next shot. I must have been on, a, on the, like uh, epinephrine or something on the adrenaline because I actually had a pretty good shot uh, just to the right of that green after messing my back up. Anyway, so anyway, we're gonna go shorter than three and a half hours today because my back's hurting me. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> Never expect to see your face, and behold, God's let me see your children. I mean, is this any good or what? So Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. Joseph took them both Ephraim with his right hand. He's the firstborn, so you expect him to get the preeminence. But sometimes God works differently than kind of the conventional wisdom. Just be aware of that. 
and Israel's left, uh, toward Israel's left, and Manasseh, uh, Joseph's second son, with his left hand toward Israel's right, and brought them close to him. I got that wrong, didn't I? Manasseh and Ephraim. Hold with me. Let's get a surprise too. Uh, to um, Gomer Pyle here. But let me let me point out something here. Now we're looking at uh, Rachel dying here, uh, and you read about some of the stuff these guys do, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you say, man, we wouldn't let them teach Sunday school right here. But look what Jesus says. This is kind of out of context, but trust me, you know, he's dealing with some of the opposition from the Jewish people early on here, and Jesus says, I say to all y'all, that many, that is Gentiles, and Romans 9 and 10 tells you about that, that many Gentiles, non-Jewish people, will come from the east and the west and recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So we're saying Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you're going to meet them in heaven. He says so, so we're going to go with that. But many of the sons of the kingdom, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jewish people, will be cast out. Because as John 1 says, uh, he was in the world, the world was made by him, the world generally didn't know him, came unto his own, the Jewish people, and the vast majority did not know him. But to each individual, those who receive, believe on his name, he gives them everlasting life. Okay, second surprise. So Jacob is adopting Joseph's two boys that were born in Egypt, and they're at the same level as all of other Jacob's male sons, as full heirs. But Israel, verse 14, stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim. That's the second, the younger one, who was the younger. And his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands. Even though Manasseh was the firstborn, you expect him to have the right hand treatment to get special blessing. And he, and he blessed Joseph by blessing his two sons in this sense and said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, a God who has been my shepherd, all my life to this day, the angel will come back to that, has redeemed me from all evil, bless these lads, and may my name live on in them. Now what did he say last week, 17 years before Jacob did, when he was describing his 130 years to the Pharaoh? Short and painful. He's kind of like an old, dried up old man who's very cynical. 17 years later, is a whole different guy. He's realizing how... I think he looked back at the superlative blessing of reunion with his son he thought he'd never see again in this life. Surviving the famine, he looks back at everything and says, wow, God really had all this plan. He had his reasons. He figured out some of the lessons he couldn't figure out before. And he is good to go, and he's just as strong as you can get spiritually, and he really gets it. And I believe he's led to do this recognizing Ephraim over Manasseh, even though that's not, it's not a command in scripture, but it's kind of just the standard operating procedure. But the God who's been my shepherd all of my life to this day, I can see how most of those pieces fit now at this perspective. The angel who's redeemed me, uh-oh, God's an angel, right? No. Are we going to talk about that? Well, let's, let's talk about that. Um, this passage talks about... Um, what happens in Genesis 32 where Jacob wrestles with this heavenly being all night to, to, to be a metaphor for not letting go of God and his promises when you don't understand what's going on. That's really the ultimate the big test, the lesson of that. So that's Genesis 32. Now in Genesis 32, um, after the wrestling match, Jacob says, uh, the passage describes him as wrestling with a man, 
But at the end of that, he says, I've seen the face of God. And here, he refers to him as an angel. So what's going on there? Three different labels for the same thing, right? Uh, quite often in the New Testament, when you have angelic appearances, like after the resurrection, we're told there were two men in white at the tomb that were telling the women what's going on. So we know those are angels who look like young men. They're, that's phenomenological language. So men doesn't mean their uh, genotype. It just means their personal appearance, right? Now, the word angel, melech, in Hebrew means messenger. And quite often it can be used for humans who are messengers. Quite often it refers to heavenly angels, the way we tend to think of it. But in Exodus 3, the burning bush... If I were to ask the average Christian, who spoke to God, to Moses at the burning bush, you're going to say God did. Yahweh did, right? But in Genesis, Exodus 3, 2, the, the second verse of that chapter, it gets you ready for that visitation where, where Moses is clearly being told by God to go back in Egypt and pull the people out. We're told it's Hamelech HaYahweh, which is the angel of the Lord. And in fact, that exact label, not an angel, but the angel of Yahweh, is a title used for certain events in the Old Testament where the pre-incarnate, before the first Christmas, Jesus Christ, that's the same person in the Trinity, appears in visible form. So he's thinking about what happened in chapter 32 when he wrestled with God. We're told he's wrestling with a man. Then afterward he said, I saw God. And here he refers to him as an angel, the angel of Yahweh, which in fact is Jesus Christ in visible form before the incarnation that uh, we read about in the Gospels. Uh, so look at this. He's not a dry up old man anymore. He's ready to go. He's, he'd be happy to stay for a, few, a little longer, but it's God's timing here. And he says, the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who's been my shepherd all the days of my life, the angel, Ha-Melech, Ha-Yahweh, uh, who has redeemed me from all evil, bless these lads, and may my name live on in them. I'm just one little guy in one little generation. God's plan is multi-generational. In the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the younger boy's head, Ephraim, it displeased him. That's not the conventional way they did in the ancient Near East. And he grasped his father's hand to remove it. He just thought dad made a mistake. From Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one's the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know my son. I'm not making a mistake. Never be afraid to correct me because I make a lot of mistakes. But occasionally I'm right. I'm not, when you, and I have to tell you that when I'm, when I'm actually right. Um, I know my son, I know, he also will become a people and be great. However, his younger brother Ephraim shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. As you look at the history of Old Testament Israel playing out, that in fact happens. He blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel, pronounce blessing. Israel, that is the people group that's going to eventually be in the promised land, will pronounce blessing, saying, My God, make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. In the Old Testament, all sons were heirs, but son, some sons were special heirs, typically the firstborn, but at the discretion of the father, it could be anyone or more than one. And here you've got a change here by the adoptive father of uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. 
Now let's look at a little special blessing for Joseph specifically in the last two verses, and we'll be done. Verse 21, Then Israel, or we could say Jacob, said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you. That, that, you know, you can't. I mean, you might leave something for your kids, you know. Uh, I've got this putter, that two-ball putter that Jamie... He's too cheap to buy one himself, you know, so he's got his eyes on that putter. So you can have anything else, but he, he's got to get the putter. Uh, I've wore it out, you know, over the years, right? Uh, Israel said to Joseph, behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you, Joseph. He's not going anywhere. And bring you back into the land of your fathers through their progeny. And then he says, I will give you one portion more than your brothers. They're all going, all the brothers are going to get different tribal areas, but specifically in the area that would be given to Ephraim uh, under Joshua when they conquer it, um, a, a little strip there near Shechem, uh, which I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and my bow. So Jacob here, at the end of his life, he's just a dried up old guy 17 years before in the previous chapter, the bulk of it, but he's dying and living now in hope. Now, hope in scripture isn't I hope you know, I'm hoping OSU will have a great rebuilding year in football this year. And on paper, they might be pretty good. Just warning you, okay? But how does OU end up with the guy that was like the Alabama quarterback? How, why didn't that ever happen to us? Come on now. Um, yeah, I hope is not, I hope something will happen. I'm hoping OSU will have a good football season. Hoping the Bible is always active anticipation about the fulfillment of stuff God has promised and we know is going to happen. Uh, the blessed hope in the New Testament is waiting for Christ to come take the church out. That's Titus 2. But what the Old Testament folks are hoping for is what they're believing in. They promised Messiah, you know? So Jacob now uh, is locked and loaded. Man, he has nailed down all this stuff, not as information, but as transforming truth. And he's living in active anticipation of the fulfillment of all these key promises that he and his father, Isaac, and his grandfather were giving about the land, seed, Messiah, and blessing. And as a result, he's able to engage in life rather than just sitting around and waiting you know, for his number to come up. He's dealing with all these kind of issues because he knows the story goes on. Um, I won't read all this, but a couple weeks ago we emphasized that in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, we read passages like this in chapter 11. Old Testament believers like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob died in faith, not having received the promises of the land, seed, and the blessing that they had been given. But they saw them through the eyes of faith directed forward. That's what hope is. From a time distance, and they greeted them. They embraced them as real and as the basis of their whole worldview and recognized they were just foreigners and temporary residents on earth. They were looking forward to a homeland above and beyond their physical lifetimes on earth and they set their face, their their hearts on a better place, a heavenly place. I love that. Now for those of us who are New Testament believers, we're kind of looking forward to the next thing on the event. This is a breakdown of the book of Revelation, uh, and we're living in the church age here, right? And we're not to set dates, but the next event is described in 1 Corinthians 15, <clears throat> which says, Behold, I tell you a secret, I tell you a mystery that wasn't in the Old Testament. We're not all going to die, but we're all going to be changed in a moment. And then 1 Thess 4 says, The Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, uh, 
the trump, see, the, it's in, President Trump's in the Bible. The trump shall sound. It's in the Bible. The trump shall sound, and uh, the dead in Christ will be resurrected first, and then we'll be caught up to meet them together in the air. So our heavenly helper, our uh, blessed help, as Titus 2 describes it, is living in the church age knowing that at any moment Christ could return to his church. You might say, well, why would God do that to his church when he knew it would be at least 2,000 years before the rapture happened? Because that's the way you're supposed to think anyway, because you're just one heartbeat away and you might not make it home. Some of you look like you might make, not make it to the conclusion of this message. But uh, <laughs> it's that painful for you, right? But, I mean, you, we're not being morbid. We need, especially as Christians, we need to be aware of our mortality and the fact that God loves us, but we're just one little piece of the puzzle. And, and there's only one God, and I'm not him, right? Now, before I close, let me say this. You know, I, I talked about a promise in the Bible nobody wants to claim Javier, right? Psalm 73, my flesh and my heart will fail. Let's put that in context. In context, it makes a lot of sense, and it's not a dreary thing. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. Uh, my heart, my flesh will fail. But you are my portion now and forever. See, I mean, you can't uh, be 20 when you're 60. You know, it's just not possible. I had hair when I needed it, though. But uh, but we've got so much to look forward to. And um, just as these Old Testament believers were anticipating the coming of the Messiah, that wouldn't happen for 2,000 years. But they were looking way beyond even the promised land to a heavenly hope. And that ought to motivate us too. You know, life on earth is a gift, but it passes really quickly. So we should appreciate it for what it is. It's important, but it's only temporary. It's not even ultimate. You know, we're much, we're much, we've got design for much bigger than this. We should appreciate our life on earth, invest it to the glory of God and to service of others, but actively be motivated anticipating what God has for us. The Bible says, all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's only one place that I'm aware of that somebody point blank asks the question, what must I do to be saved? That's a pretty good question. That'd be Acts 16.30. The Apostle Paul, who writes 13 New Testament books, is the guy asked that. So that's a pretty good guy to ask. And he says what? Join the synagogue, try the best to be a better person, and give 10% or more. It says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And Jesus says, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him uh, has everlasting life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So this was a message to believers about how you should think about life and death, and life after death, if you're not a believer, I pray God will convict you of your need for a Savior and you might trust alone in Him from the depth of your heart, whom to know a right is life eternal. Father, I thank you for the power of the Word of God to orient us to reality in its fullness. We live in a culture that's rejected biblical worldview and has spun into absurdity, but we're the ones who are embracing reality. And I pray that Without becoming morbid, we could have a very keen sense of our mortality and just how small we are and just how big you are and that we might be excited about the opportunities we're given during this brief stay on earth to glorify the one who saved us, to live for the one who died for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.